0: through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening for the Gifts of Freedom, coming to you over at www.blocktalkradio.com. I would also remind you that these shows are available. They're archived, available on iTunes. You can access those at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. I would also suggest you send a friend request to our executive producer, Leslie Guess on Facebook. That's
1: L-E-S-L-E-Y.
0: Yes, on Facebook, so that you can keep abreast of what's going on in the world of black history. Tonight, we're going to listen to a 30 minute clip relative to William Still and his book, The Underground Railroad. And you can also read his book uh, online, which is about 800 pages go sort to of your favorite uh, search engine, put in "William Still Underground Railroad. And uh, just a lot of detail and reference to heroes that escaped from slavery to freedom uh, via the Underground Railroad. Uh, full of narratives and uh, the real Jane Goads during the uh, Era of slavery are outlined in that book. Also, perhaps joining us later will be Dorothy Hartman uh, relative to the protection of intellectual uh, property, uh, relative to her long standing uh, fight with the United States government, uh, most notably the U.S. Patent Office. Also joining me uh, in the reading of the book um, here later on uh, for discussion will be Wesley Clayton. And uh, so if you're ready and if you're ready in the production room there, we are now ready to go. Oh, Wesley is the subject of the book. I'm sorry. Wesley Clayton is the subject who we'll be hearing about in this 30-minute clip. Okay, we're ready to go. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment. of Okay, with a little technical difficulty there, and getting this uh, lined up. We'll be working out the kinks here and be getting that to you uh, very shortly. Also, if you have questions or ideas about uh, subject matter for the Gifts of Freedom, you can contact our producer, Leslie Gist, uh, via email. And that's Leslie, L-E-S-L-E-Y, at thegistoffreedom.com. G-I-S-T, The gift of Freedom. You can also contact me via
1: email. Hill. Section 8. Wesley Harris, Elias, Robert Jackson, and the Matterson Brothers. Footnote. Wesley Harris was shot by slave hunters. End footnote. In setting out for freedom, Wesley was the leader of this party. After two nights of fatiguing travel at a distance of about 60 miles from home, The young aspirants for liberty were betrayed and in an attempt made to capture them a most bloody conflict ensued both fugitives and pursuers were the recipients of severe wounds from gunshots and other weapons used in the contest wesley bravely used his firearms until almost fatally wounded by one of the pursuers who with a heavily loaded gun discharged the contents with deadly aim in his left arm which raked the flesh from the bone for a space of about six inches in length. One of Wesley's companions also fought heroically, and only yielded when badly wounded and quite overpowered. The two younger, brothers of C. Matterson, it seemed, made no resistance. In order to recall the adventures of this struggle and the success of Wesley Harris, it is only necessary to copy the report as then penned from the lips of this young hero while on the Underground Railroad even then in a very critical state. Most fearful indeed was his condition when he was brought to the Vigilance Committee in this city. Underground Railroad Record November 2nd, 1853 Arrived Robert Jackson, short man, Elias Wesley Harris, age 22 years, dark color, medium height, and of slender stature. Robert was born in Martinsburg, Virginia, and was owned by Philip Pendleton, From a boy, he had always been hired out. At the first of this year, he commenced services with Mrs. Carroll, proprietress of the United States Hotel at Harper's Ferry. Of Mrs. Carroll, he speaks in very grateful terms, saying that she was kind to him and all the servants, and promised them their freedom at her death. She excused herself for not giving them their freedom on the ground that her husband died insolvent, leaving her the responsibility of settling his debts but while mrs carroll was very kind to her servants her manager was equally as cruel about a month before wesley left the overseer for some trifling cause attempted to flog him but was resisted and himself flogged this resistance of the slave was regarded by the overseer as an unpardonable offence consequently he communicated the intelligence to his owner which had the desired effect on his mind as appeared from his answer to the overseer which was nothing less than instructions that if he should again attempt to correct Wesley, and he should repel the wholesome treatment, the overseer was to put him in prison and sell him, whether he offended again or not, the following Christmas, as he was to be sold without fail. Wesley's mistress was kind enough to apprise him of the intention of his owner and the overseer, and told him that if he could help himself, he had better do so. So from that time Wesley began to contemplate how he should escape the doom which had been planned for him. "'A friend,' says he, by the name of C. Matterson, told me that he was going off. Then I told him of my master, writing to Mrs. Carroll concerning selling, etc., and that I was going off, too. We then concluded to go together. There were two others, brothers of Matterson, who were told of our plan to escape, and readily joined with us in the undertaking.' so one saturday night at twelve o'clock we set out for the north after traveling upwards of two days and over sixty miles we found ourselves unexpectedly in Terrytown, maryland there we were informed by a friendly colored man of the danger we were in and of the bad character of the place towards colored people especially those who were escaping to freedom and he advised us to hide as quickly as we could we at once went to the woods and hid Soon after we had secreted ourselves, a man came nearby and commenced splitting wood or rails, which alarmed us. We then moved to another hiding place in a thicket near a farmer's barn, where we were soon startled again by a dog approaching and barking at us. The attention of the owner of the dog was drawn to his barking and to where we were. The owner of the dog was a farmer. He asked us where we were going. We replied, Gettysburg, to visit some relatives, etc. He told us that we were running off. He then offered friendly advice, talked like a Quaker, and urged us to go with him to his barn for protection. After much persuasion, we consented to go with him. Soon after putting us in his barn, himself and daughter prepared us a nice breakfast, which cheered our spirits as we were hungry. For this kindness, we paid him one dollar. He next told us to hide on the mow till evening, when he would safely direct us on our road to Gettysburg. All, very much fatigued from traveling, fell asleep excepting myself i could not sleep i felt as if all was not right about noon men were heard talking around the barn i woke my companions up and told them that the man had betrayed us at first they did not believe me and a moment afterwards the barn door was opened and in came the men eight in number one of the men asked the owner of the barn if he had any long straw yes was the answer so up on the mow came three of the men when to their great surprise as they pretended we were discovered the question was then asked by the owner of the barn by one of the men if he harbored runaway negroes in his barn he answered no and pretended to be entirely ignorant of their being in his barn one of the men replied that four negroes were on the mow and he knew of it the men then asked us where we were going we told them to gettysburg that we had aunts and a mother living there also we spoke of a mr huffman a gentleman we happened to have some knowledge of having seen him in virginia We were asked for our passes we told them that we hadn't any that we had not been required to carry them from where we came from they then said that we would have to go before a magistrate and if he allowed us to go on well and good the men all being armed and furnished with ropes we were ordered to be tied i told them if they took me they would have to take me dead or crippled at the same instant one of my friends cried out where is the man that betrayed us spying him at the same moment he shot him badly wounding him. Then the conflict fairly began. The constable seized me by the collar, or rather behind the shoulder. I at once shot him with my pistol, but in consequence of his throwing up his arm, which hit mine as I fired, the effects of the load of my pistol was much turned aside. His face, however, was badly burned, besides his shoulder being wounded. I again fired on the pursuers, but do not know whether I hit anybody or not. I then drew a sword I had brought with me, and was about cutting my way to the door, when I was shot by one of the men, receiving the entire contents of one load of a double-barreled gun in my left arm. That being the arm with which I was defending myself, the load brought me to the ground, and I was unable to make further struggle for myself. I was then badly beaten with guns, etc. In the meantime, my friend, Craven, who was defending himself, was shot badly in the face, and most violently beaten until he was conquered and tied. THE TWO YOUNG BROTHERS OF CRAVEN STOOD STILL WITHOUT MAKING THE LEAST RESISTANCE. AFTER WE WERE FAIRLY CAPTURED, WE WERE TAKEN TO Terrytown, WHICH WAS IN SIGHT OF WHERE WE WERE BETRAYED. BY THIS TIME I HAD LOST SO MUCH BLOOD FROM MY WOUNDS THAT THEY CONCLUDED MY SITUATION WAS TOO DANGEROUS TO ADMIT OF BEING TAKEN FURTHER, SO I WAS MADE A PRISONER AT A TAVERN KEPT BY A MAN NAMED FISHER. THERE MY WOUNDS WERE DRESSED, AND THIRTY-TWO SHOT WERE TAKEN FROM MY ARM. FOR THREE DAYS I WAS CRAZY, AND THEY THOUGHT I WOULD DIE during the first two weeks while i was a prisoner at the tavern i raised a great deal of blood and was considered in a very dangerous condition so much so that persons desiring to see me were not permitted afterwards i began to get better and was then kept privately was strictly watched day and night occasionally however the cook a colored woman mrs smith would manage to get to see me also james matthews succeeded in getting to see me Consequently, as my wounds healed, and my senses came to me, I began to plan how to make another effort to escape. I asked one of the friends alluded to above to get me a rope. He got it. I kept it about me four days in my pocket in the meantime, I procured three nails on Friday night, October fourteenth. I fastened my nails in under the window-sill, tied my rope to the nails, threw my shoes out the window, put the rope in my mouth, and took hold of it with my well hand clambered into the window very weak but i managed to let myself down to the ground i was so weak that i could scarcely walk but i managed to hobble off to a place three-quarters of a mile from the tavern where a friend had fixed upon me to go i succeeded in making my escape there i was found by my friend who had kept me secure till saturday eve when a swift horse was furnished by james rogers and a colored man found to conduct me to gettysburg Instead of going directly to Gettysburg, we took a different road in order to shun our pursuers, as the news of my escape had created general excitement. My three other companions, who were captured, were sent to Westminster Jail, where they were kept three weeks, and afterwards sent to Baltimore, and sold for $1,200 apiece. I was informed while at the tavern in Terrytown. The Vigilance Committee procured good medical attention and afforded the fugitive time for recuperation, Furnished him with clothing and a free ticket, and sent him on his way, greatly improved in health and strong in the faith that he who would be free himself must strike the blow. His safe arrival in Canada, with his thanks, were duly announced. And some time after becoming naturalized, in one of his letters he wrote that he was a brakesman on the Great Western Railroad in Canada, promoted from the U.G.R.R. The result of being under the protection of the British Lion. End of section eight.
2: Section ten of the Underground Railroad Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Underground Railroad Part One by William Still. Section ten. James Mercer, William H. Gilliam, and John Clayton stowed away in a hot berth. This arrival came by steamer, but they neither came in stateroom nor as cabin, steerage, or deck passengers. A certain space, not far from the boiler, where the heat and coal dust were almost intolerable, the coloured steward on the boat, in answer to an appeal from these unhappy bondmen, could point to no other place for concealment but this nor was he at all certain that they could endure the intense heat of that place. It admitted of no other posture than lying flat down, wholly shut out from the light, and nearly in the same predicament in regard to the air. Here, however, was a chance of throwing off the yoke, even if it cost them their lives. They considered and resolved to try it at all hazards. Henry Box Brown's sufferings were nothing compared to what these men submitted to "'during the entire journey. "'They reached the house of one of the committee "'about three o'clock a.m. "'All the way from the wharf "'the cold rain poured down in torrents, "'and they got completely drenched, "'but their hearts were swelling "'with joy and gladness unutterable. "'From the thick coating of coal dust "'and the effect of the rain added thereto, "'all traces of natural appearance "'were entirely obliterated, "'and they looked frightful in the extreme, "'but they had placed their lives "'in mortal peril for freedom.' Every step of their critical journey was reviewed and commented on, with matchless natural eloquence. How, when almost on the eve of suffocating in their warm birds, in order to catch a breath of air, they were compelled to crawl one at a time to a small aperture. But scarcely would one poor fellow pass three minutes being thus refreshed, ere the others would insist that he should go back to his hole. Air was precious, but for the time being they valued their liberty at still greater price. After they had talked to their heart's content, and after they had been thoroughly cleansed and changed in apparel, their physical appearance could be easily discerned, which made it less a wonder whence such outbursts of eloquence had emanated. They bore every mark of determined manhood. The date of this arrival was February twenty sixth, 1854, and the following description was then recorded. Arrived by steamer, Pennsylvania, James Mercer, William H. Gilliam, and John Clayton, from Richmond. James was owned by the widow, Mrs. T. E. White. He is thirty-two years of age, of dark complexion, well-made, good-looking, reads and writes, is very fluent in speech, and remarkably intelligent. From a boy he had been hired out. The last place he had the honour to fill, before escaping, was with Messrs Williams and brother, wholesale commission merchants for his services in this store the widow had been drawing one hundred and twenty-five dollars per annum clear of all expenses he did not complain of bad treatment from his mistress indeed he spoke rather favourably of her but he could not close his eyes to the fact that at one time mrs white had been in possession of thirty head of slaves although at the time he was counting the cost of escaping two only remained himself and william save a little boy and on himself a mortgage for seven hundred and fifty dollars was then resting. He could therefore, with his remarkably quick intellect, calculate about how long it would be before he reached the auction block. He had a wife, but no child. She was owned by Mr. Henry W. Qualls, so out of that Sodom he felt he would have to escape, even at the cost of leaving his wife behind. Of course he felt hopeful that the way would open by which she could escape at a future time, and so it did, as will appear by and by. His aged mother he had to leave also. William Henry Gilliam likewise belonged to the widow White. He had been hired to Mrs. White and Brother to drive their bread wagon. William was a baker by trade, for his service his mistress had received $135 per year. He thought his mistress quite as good, if not a little better, than most slaveholders, but he had never felt persuaded to believe that she was good enough for him to remain a slave for her support. Indeed, he had made several unsuccessful attempts before this time to escape from slavery and its horrors. He was fully posted from A to Z, but in his own person he had been smart enough to escape most of the more brutal outrages. He knew how to read and write, and in readiness of speech and general natural ability was far above the average of slaves. He was twenty-five years of age, well made, of light complexion, and might be put down as a valuable piece of property. This loss fell with crushing weight upon the kind-hearted mistress, as will be seen in a letter subjoined which she wrote to the unfaithful William some time after he had fled. Letter from Mrs. L. E. White, Richmond, 16th, 1854 Dear Henry, Your mother and myself received your letter. She is much distressed at your conduct. She is remaining just as you left her, she says, and she will never be reconciled to your conduct. I think, Henry, you have acted most dishonourably. Had you have made a confidant of me, I would have been better off, and you as you are. I am badly situated living with Mrs. Palmer, and having to put up with everything. Your mother is also dissatisfied. I am miserably poor. Do not get a cent of your hire or James's beside losing you both but if you can reconcile, so do. By renting a cheap house, I might have lived. Now it seems salvation is before me. Martha and the doctor are living in Portsmouth. It is not in her power to do much for me. I know you will repent it. I heard six weeks before you went that you were trying to persuade him off. But we all liked you, and I was unwilling to believe it. However, I leave it in God's hands. He will know what to do. Your mother says that I must tell you servant Jones is dead and old Mrs. Galt. Kit is well, but we are very uneasy, losing your and James's hire. I fear, poor little fellow, that he will be obliged to go, as I am compelled to live, and it will be your fault. I am quite unwell, but of course you don't care. Yours, L. E. White. If you choose to come back and could, I would do a very good part by you. Tola and Cook has none. This touching epistle was given by the disobedient William to a member of the Vigilant Committee, when on a visit to Canada in 1855, and it was thought to be of too much value to be lost. It was put away with other valuable UGRR documents for future reference. Touching the rascality of William and James, and the unfortunate predicament in which it placed the kind-hearted widow, Mrs. Louisa White, the following editorial clipped from the wide-awake Richmond Dispatch, was also highly appreciated, and preserved as conclusive testimony to the successful working of the UGRR in the Old Dominion. It reads thus, Rascality somewhere. We called attention yesterday to the advertisement of two Negroes belonging to Mrs. Louisa White by Tola and Cook, and in the call we expressed the opinion that they were still lurking about the city, preparatory to going off. Mr. Tola, we find, is of a different opinion. He believes that they have already cleared themselves, have escaped to a free state, and we think it extremely probable that he is in the right. They were both of them uncommonly intelligent Negroes. One of them, the one hired to Mr. White, was a tip-top baker. He had been all about the country, and had been in the habit of supplying the U.S. Pennsylvania with bread. Mr. W. having the contract. In his visits, for this purpose of course, he formed acquaintances with all sorts of seafaring characters and there is every reason to believe that he has been assisted to get off in that way, along with the other boy hired by the Messrs. Williams. That the two acted in concert can admit of no doubt. The question is now to find out how they got off. They must undoubtedly have had white men in the secret. Have we then a nest of abolition scoundrels among us? There ought to be a law to put a police officer on board every vessel as soon as she lands at the wharf. There is one, we believe, for inspecting vessels before they leave. If there is not, there ought to be one. These negroes belong to a widow lady and constitute all the property she has on earth. They have both been raised with the greatest indulgence. Had it been otherwise, they would never have had the opportunity to escape, as they have done. Their flight has left her penniless. Either of them would readily have sold for twelve hundred dollars and Mr. Toller advised their owner to sell them at the commencement of the year, probably anticipating the very thing that has happened. She refused to do so because she felt too much attachment to them. They have made a fine return, truly. No comment is necessary on the above editorial except simply to express the hope that the editor and his friends, who seem to be utterly befogged as to how these uncommonly intelligent Negroes made their escape will find the problem satisfactorily solved in this book. However, in order to do even-handed justice to all concerned, it seems but proper that Williams and James should be heard from, and hence a letter from each is here appended for what they are worth. True, they were intended only for private use, but since the true light, freedom, has come, all things may be made manifest. Letter from William Henry Gilliam St. Catherine's, C.W., May 15th, 1854. My dear friend, I received yours, dated the 10th, and the papers on the 13th. I also saw the piece that was in Miss Shad's paper about me. I think Tola is right about my being in a free state. I am and think a great deal of it. Also, I have no compassion on the penniless widow lady. I have served her 25 years two months. I think that is long enough for me to live a slave. Dear sir, I am very sorry to hear of the accident that happened to our friend Mr. Meekins. I have read the letter to all that lives in St. Catherine's, that came from Old Virginia, and then I sent it to Toronto, to Mercer and Clayton to see, and to Farman to read to themselves. Sir, you must write to me soon and let me know how Meekins gets on with his trial, and you must pray for him. I have told all here to do the same for him." May God bless and protect him from prison. I have heard a great deal of old Richmond and Norfolk. Dear Sir, if you see Mr. or Mrs. Gilbert, give my love to them and tell them to write to me. Also give my respect to your family and a part for yourself. Love from the friends to you, Solomon Brown, H. Atkins, West Johnson, Mrs. Brooks, Mr. Dykes, Mr. Smith is better at present. And do not forget to write the news of minkins trial i cannot say any more at this time but remain yours and a true friend until death w h gilliam the widow's mite our friend minkins in whose behalf william asked the united prayers of his friends was one of the scoundrels who assisted him and his two companions to escape on the steamer being suspected of rascality in this direction he was arrested and put in jail but as no evidence could be found against him, he was soon released. James Mercer's Letter Toronto, March 17th, 1854 My dear friend Still, I take this method of informing you that I am well, and when this comes to hand it may find you and your family enjoying good health. Sir, my particular for writing is that I wish to hear from you, and to hear all the news from down south. I wish to know if all things are working right for the rest of my brethren, whom in bondage. I will also say that I am very much pleased with Toronto, so also the friends that came over with me. It is true that we have not been employed as yet, but we are in hopes of being so in a few days. We happen here in good time just about the time people in this country are going to work. I am in good health and good spirits, and feels rejoiced in the Lord for my liberty." "'I received a couple of paper from you today. "'I wish you see James Morris, who, or Abram George I and second on the ship, Pennsylvania. "'Give my respects to them, and ask James if he will call at Henry W. Qualls on May Street, "'opposite the Jew's synagogue, and call for Marina Mercer. "'Give my love to her, and ask of her all the times about Richmond. "'Tell her to send me all the news. "'Tell Mr. Morris that there will be no danger in going to that place.' You will also tell M. to make himself known to her, as she may know who sent him. And I wish to get a letter from you. James M. Mercer John H. Hill's letter My friend, I would like to hear from you. I have been looking for a letter from you for several days, and the last was very distressing to me. Please to write right away. Yours most respectfully, John H. Hill Instead of weeping over the sad situation of his penniless mistress and showing any signs of contrition for having wronged the man who held the mortgage of seven hundred and fifty dollars on him, James actually feels rejoiced in the Lord for his liberty, and is very much pleased with Toronto. But is not satisfied yet. He is ever concocting a plan by which his wife might be run off from Richmond, which would be the cause of her owner, Henry W. Qualls, Esquire, losing at least one thousand dollars. St. Catherine, Canada, June eighth, eighteen 1854. Mr. Still, dear friend, I received a letter from the poor old widow, Mrs. L. E. White, and she says I may come back if I choose, and she will do a good part by me. Yes, yes, I am choosing the western side of the south for my home. She is smart, but cannot bung my eye, so she shall have to die in the poor house at last, so she says, and Mercer and myself will be the cause of it. "'That is all right, I am getting even with her now, "'for I was in the poorhouse for twenty-five years "'and have just got out. "'And she said she knew I was coming away six weeks before I started, "'so you may know my chance was slim. "'But Mr. John Wright said, "'I came off like a gentleman, "'and he did not blame me for coming, "'for I was a great boy. "'Yes, I hear him enough, he is all gas. "'I am in Canada, and they cannot help themselves. "'About that subject, I will not say anything more.' You must write to me as soon as you can and let me hear the news and how the family is and yourself. Let me know how the times is with the UGRR company. Is it doing good business? Mr. Dyke sends his respects to you. Give mine to your family. Your true friend, W.H. Gilliam. John Clayton, the companion in tribulation of William and James, must not be lost sight of any longer. He was owned by the widow Clayton and was white enough to have been nearly related to her being a mulatto. He was about thirty-five years of age, a man of fine appearance and quite intelligent. Several years previous, he had made an attempt to escape, but failed. Prior to escaping in this instance, he had been labouring in a tobacco factory at $150 a year. It is needless to say that he did not approve of the peculiar institution. He left a wife and one child behind to mourn after him. Of his views of Canada and freedom... The following frank and sensible letter, penned shortly after his arrival, speaks for itself. Toronto, March 6, 1854 Dear Mr. Still, I take this method of informing you that I am well both in health and mind. You may rest assured that I felt myself a free man, and do not fail as I did when I was in Virginia, thanks be to God I have no master, into Canada, but I am my own man. I arrived safe into Canada on Friday last. I must request of you to write a few lines to my wife, and just state to her that her friend arrives safe into this glorious land of liberty, and I am well, and she will make very short her time in Virginia. Tell her that I likes here very well, and hopes to like it better when I gets to work. I don't mean for you to write the same words that are written above, but I wish you to give her a clear understanding where I am, and shall remain here until she comes or I hears from her. Nothing more at present but remain yours most respectfully, John Clayton. You'll please to direct this to Petersburg Luena John's or Clayton John is best. End of section ten.
0: Well, wow, quite uh, a heroic passage there, a lot of information. Uh, even in that piece in reference to the escape of those three young men. Um, what you will note, the vigilance committee, uh, kept very detailed records, um, of the individuals that they assisted, uh, height, weight, where they were from, uh, how well they handled the English language, uh, who their slaveholders were. Um, even carried on correspondence uh, with the escapees once they were in Freedom Land. Uh, Quite a bit of correspondence there from Canada, Toronto, to Williamsville. Um, The escapees were exhibiting a great need to know of the whereabouts and the happenstance of their Brothers still being held in bondage in southern states, and still holding out hope that one day they would be free. Um, also, notice the irony in uh, the female owner um, exhorting her slave to return, lest she die in poverty, lest she die in the poorhouse. And the escapee noted that he, having been held in bondage for 25 years, was also in the poorhouse for 25 years, and uh, it seemed beyond uh, his ability to take uh, pity on her uh, because he because she would likely uh, die in the poorhouse. Um, you will notice that uh, he had to leave his wife I believe that was James and also an aging mother uh, in slavery uh, to leave them in bondage uh, Mr. Clayton was involved in a shootout um, where he escaped captured and had to escape again After being turned in by someone who described themselves as a Quaker, offered him shelter, food, took him to his farm. brother knew something, couldn't sleep that night, couldn't sleep very well, sure enough, about eight men uh busted through the door uh, He got off a few rounds at his pursuers. They got a few rounds off on him. He was captured, taken, and put in a tavern, held there in a tavern. But was still able to find an ally there and uh, a cook in the tavern who was black. And um, you will note that he had his friends on the outside appropriate a rope and nails. And he fashioned an escape from the tavern and got away and was able to make good his getaway in spite of being uh, injured himself due to some gunshot wounds that he had suffered while being held uh, captive there uh, in the tavern. If you have a comment or a question, you can give us a call here at 347-324-5552. the Escape uh, created a lot of uh, questioning of the uh, white folks in that area. Uh, thought they had some white traders amongst them, that there was no way that these uh, Negroes could have planned their own escape, and they must have had some help from white traders. And uh, a remedy would be, so this would not happen in the future, if you notice it, put a cop on every boat, uh, leaving the south headed for the north and it would be searched from top to bottom to make sure that this did not happen again, that individuals would be able to uh, escape uh, with the assistance of white traders, obviously, you know, to their way of thinking. Uh, but it was seen that these brothers... Uh, I had enough. One gentleman, again, was held in slavery for 25 years, was not about to return uh, to the South to assist his penniless former owner. Uh, now, Mr. Clayton, in his one instance, uh, you noticed, was able to escape but his comrades were captured, uh, taken to Baltimore and sold for $300 or $1,200. Um, again, that, uh, that shootout was quite graphic. Uh, and the gunfire was at close range. I mean, they were all in a barn and, uh, the image that I have of Barnes is not a not very much room to move around in, and apparently there were casualties on both sides. I believe he said he shot the magistrate. Uh, the unusual, no, uh, the sheriff. They were going to take him. The constable, that's what it was. Uh, he shot the constable, who had uh, declared that he was going to take him into the magistrate. <clears throat> Again, that shootout was a very close quarters, casualties on both sides. Um, so here we have a real incident of a Django shooting his way out of slavery. Uh, this wasn't fiction. And uh, one has to wonder if it was shootouts like this that uh, inspired Bob Marley. I shot the sheriff, but I didn't shoot the deputy. Uh, and if you uh should get a hold of Steele's book, you will find more stories, uh, the Django type, uh rescues and shootouts, uh, in Steele's book, The Underground Railroad, eight hundred pages. And again, uh, this book is based on meticulous records that still himself kept and also members of the Vigilance Committee there in Philadelphia. Uh, individuals like John Copeland, um, who was a real member or a member or part of a real militia that was put together to rescue uh individuals from uh, returning to the South who might have been captured uh, to provide them protection from bounty hunters. And these were black militias, armed black militias, um, in the area of Philadelphia, Maryland, other northern northern, uh, states, who, long before we had border ruffians, in the Kansas-Missouri, uh, border. Uh, they were fighting border ruffians, uh, in the 1850s, 1840s, 1830s, there as part of the Underground Railroad. Um, uh, John Brown was also, uh, involved in that, uh, some of those rescues, uh, not only uh, in the north, but here in the Midwest, from Missouri, uh, Kansas, and taking people into Iowa and Nebraska along the Underground River road. Um, David Ruggles is mentioned in the book, a gentleman from New York City who published uh illegal bounty hunters in his newspaper that he operated and not only did he name these illegal bounty hunters uh, he also played a part in having them arrested and uh, it was common for these bounty hunters to place posters in the north of runaways escapes, escapees from southern slavery, from southern bondage And uh, this was prior to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. And it was probably the work of the Vigilance Committee that brought on that Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. The Fugitive Slave Law made it illegal to assist anyone who was attempting to escape slavery. And in fact, um, it one knew that an individual was an escapee from Southern bondage. They were required by that law to turn that individual in to the authorities, to the local magistrate for a hearing so that they might be returned to bondage. And I think there was also a bounty and a reward uh, whoever turned the individual in got a piece of money. The magistrate got a piece of money. Uh, the judge got a piece of money. Everybody got paid uh, relative to having these uh, individuals returned. Everybody, that is, except members of the Underground Railroad and the Vigilance Committee. Uh, and the abolitionists were very upfront Uh about their assistance that they were providing to the escapees, they even advertised it. Uh, it's how bold they were. Uh, Frederick Douglass uh, even propagated from his story of escapees and his own escape uh, that was published in newspapers, and and like Douglass, a number of them went on the lecture circuit. Uh, to further the cause of the abolitionist movement and also to put a little change in their pocket. Uh, you know, so the slaveholders were, you know, it's not very much they could do about the exodus and the assistance um, that the Vigilance Committee was providing. Um the slave holders were hurting financially. Uh, they were literally going into the poorhouse. So that's how the, the reason they lobbied uh, the United States Congress and Senate so that they could pass that fugitive slave law of 1850 and, uh, making it a federal crime. And, uh, to assist me trying to... uh, And uh, I'm sure those slavers, holders were uh, pretty much outdone to see uh, the people that they were holding in bondage crossing that Mason-Dixon line. And and that was a strong line both ways. And uh, once they crossed that Mason-Dixon Dixon line, the bounty hunter, slaveholder, if he was amongst the uh, posse, could be arrested for trying to recapture. So that's why you had so many gunfights, so much bloodshed. Um, Once they crossed that Mason Dixon line and attempted to uh, return the former slaveholder or the former slave to slave holding territory. And it was the work of the abolitionists, uh, and I should say successful work, um, uh, that led up to the Civil War. And uh was a, a major contributor uh to the Civil War. Uh the efforts to where the South felt that in order for them to uh on to their way of life uh, slavery and to perpetuity that they should succeed from the union and I guess put up a fence Uh, once they would have uh, their own government their own confederate states they could do as they doing well pleased, and uh But before all that could happen, it was a brand new world that they faced once they crossed over that Mason-Dixon line and tried to enforce the 1850 Slave Act. And um, there was something passed up south that was called the Liberty Laws. Liberty Laws, where the... Uh, individuals such as John Copeland and the black militia was given authority to arrest bounty hunters and assist those slave uh, individuals who were escaping slavery, or those laws became known as the liberty laws that were passed individually by the states to counteract the 1850 uh, the 1850 slave law Again, it was rather uh, hysterical to read about um, the lady trying to convince uh, the escapees to return to slavery. You know? Um, So they were really deluded into the idea that somehow black folks enjoy being enslaved. being put to the toil without wages, without medical benefits, etc., uh, family members being sold off deeper south into slavery, that this was something that one should want to uh, return to. Now, somebody should get a hold of Mr. Russell Simmons and tell him that's a skip that he might want to produce. Rather than this skit that that she did produce, which we won't go into right now, everybody should be pretty much aware uh, of that skit. And uh, but there's one he could uh, probably do, and and uh, about those brave men and women who escaped from the South, those brave men and women in the North who assisted them, who engaged in shootouts uh, to assist those individuals. Another thing in uh, listening to this reading that you should have picked up on, that once the escaped slave was in Canada, he came under the protection of the Canadian laws. And... uh, became a naturalized Canadian. Now, that's how much clout the uh, Vigilance Committee and the Underground Railroad had. And, I mean, when they assisted, they assisted. And you got a brand new citizenship. Became a naturalized Canadian. So, if you could make it to the north and then make it to Canada, Canada, there was no way that a slaver was going to go in and snatch up a naturalized Canadian. Uh, That would have been unheard of. And, uh, you know, the the escapees were, uh, in spite of being thought to be illiterate, um, how they discovered these laws and rights and how they were able to write letters to Mr. Steele inquiring about uh, those relatives and friends uh, left in bondage. And uh, how they these individuals utilized the laws and the courts, that if they were, uh, they had the courage to escape. If they were recaptured, they used the courts to fight, utilizing the liberty laws. Uh, it was unfortunate that Dred Scott lost his case. Uh, they did sign his petition with an ex. And, um, of course, uh, Dred Scott had a very at least, in my opinion, a very strong case, since his owner had voluntarily taken him to a free state, and uh, so. But a lot of individuals won their cases in state court before Mr. Scott lost his case at the highest level, the Supreme Court of the United States who denied his petition Um, and again his petition was based on the fact that his owner voluntarily had taken him to a free state where there were no where slavery was against the law and therefore um, making him free and once free that he was forever free Uh, certainly uh, again uh, more material for Mr. Russell Simmons uh, to base some future uh, skits on and uh, I would imagine that the slaveholders were were not at all amused when they received a petition, uh, particularly Dred Scott's slaver holder when he received that petition and he was being sued uh, for returning Mr. Scott to slavery. <clears throat> but here again, unfortunately, uh, again, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court Um, interesting about uh, uh, Dred Scott he became very well known around the St. Louis area Uh, he even hung around the courthouse uh, where his uh, decision was reached and sold his autograph for 25 cents or so and uh, was even taken around and, and, and made a few speeches around the St. Louis area after his death his uh his widow went into seclusion she and her daughters and uh not very much is uh, known about her uh we should delve into that uh, to find out uh what became of them and uh how they fared uh after emancipation even uh And as I have been told, um, they received no compensation from the former owner, uh, no compensation from the state of Missouri. And um, there's also another story uh, of the enslaved man who uh, was a trainer of the slaveholder's dog. So when he escaped, he ran out with the dogs, he ran up a tree, when the dog got to the tree, he gave the dog a signal, and the dog went on, okay, and uh, when he gave the dog the signal, the dog turned on the slaveholder, killing the slaveholder, oh, so many stories, so many stories. Uh, to be told, the stories that you didn't get in your senior history class in whatever school you went to, whether you went to school in the north, south, east, or west. You might have been fortunate if you went to a historically black college or historically black high school. This information certainly did not get out, uh, particularly after integration in any of the history classes I wanted to uh, advise you that uh, you can teach, keep up now with the Gist of Freedom by way of Twitter. We also have a new site, www.buriedblackhistory.com. That's dot www.buriedblackhistory.com also want you to check out uh leslie's uh YouTube page. She has a youtube channel uh, and that's at youtube dot com backslash the gifts of freedom the you got um youtube dot com um, we also have a classic website that you can also reach through. W The Gist of Freedom G-I-S-T, the Gist of Freedom spelled out dot com. A lot of contact information there folks. Glad you could join us. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host and I bid you all a good night.